Today's scripture reading is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 and 37 through 39. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he, is, if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Skipping down to verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Do you want your life to be a desert or a river? That's a pretty obvious question, isn't it? I mean, we, don't have to, we don't have to think real hard about that one. Have you ever, have you ever been to a, a desert, right? You can imagine uh, being in a place like this. Uh, I like to go hiking. Some of you know that. I like to do a lot of that. I've done a, a decent amount of hiking in various desert uh, terrains uh, with my family. Here's a picture of one of the first hikes we did uh, together uh, in, the, in the desert area uh, many, many years ago. And deserts, deserts are, they're beautiful, right? But they're dangerous. Like the stakes hiking in a desert are very different than the stakes when I go on a hike over here in Kill Creek, right? People die in the desert. They're dangerous. In fact, Kelly can tell you that I, I get a little paranoid when we're hiking in the desert. I'm like, do we have enough water? I've, I've made that mistake before. That's a terrifying feeling, right? Do we have enough, do we have enough sunscreen, right? Have we left early enough? Do we know our exact route? It's, it's dangerous. One of our, our last desert hikes was in Death Valley, or Tatooine, as we like to call it. Um, and we got there before sunrise, and by 10 a.m., we were done. It was already 120 degrees, Deserts are harsh and unforgiving. They're dangerous. And the ache of thirst can literally drive you insane before it kills you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be unkind here. But we all know people like that, don't we? People whose lives, whose hearts, whose attitudes, whose ways of speaking feel like a desert. Harsh and unforgiving. Always thirsty, dangerous and lifeless. And if you don't have anybody come to mind, it might be you, right? Or me. Because I know I've had seasons in my life, certainly, that have felt pretty deserty. Have you ever felt like a desert? Like, like where your whole being felt dry, dry and lifeless? We all, we all know that that's, that's not living, right? Whether, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you uh, agree with anything else we say today, right? No one wants a desert life. And so when we, when we instead read this description of life right here, Offered to each one of us, Jesus, Jesus says, what did he say? Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That sounds pretty good to me. 
So how do we, how do we get there? Well, if you haven't already, turn to John chapter 7. Now, now the, answer, the answer to this question comes pretty late in our story, actually. We have to wait for it. Because what John does first is show us the opposite. Uh, he, he shows us several people, three groups, actually. We're going to kind of walk through these the snapshots in this, this story. Three, three groups of people who, because of their stance on Jesus, have chosen, instead of rivers of water, they've chosen a, a desert life. And John wants us to learn from these negative examples so that when we get to Jesus' offer, we'll embrace it. And so the first, the first negative example here is Jesus' own brothers, his own family. It's during the, the Feast of Booths, John tells us, or the Feast of Tabernacles. So this means it's, it's at fall time. It's like harvest, right? It's a time when God's people would remember uh, God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness, but also as a time of, of thanksgiving for, for the harvest. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty big deal and a, a major community event. You know, not, I kind of imagine a little bit like our old, you know, old, own old settlers days, right? Uh, kind, of a, kind of a big community uh, get together, but this would be like much, much bigger, right? Across Judea. And so this is an opportunity, right? Like Jesus, there'll be crowds there. Uh, people everywhere. If you want more followers, more popularity, go to this thing and impress some people. That's essentially what his brothers tell him. Verse, verse 3. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. It's so interesting to me, right? Because they're telling Jesus to do all of this stuff, right? But they don't believe him. Now, you might, you might think back, if you hear last week, the, the previous story uh, talked about a bunch of Jesus' disciples were, were walking away from him. They were leaving him, right? And so his brothers have, have essentially, they've seen him declining in the polls, right? The crowds have dwindled around him. And there, there's something, like even though they don't believe in him, there's something they like about the popularity or the miracles, right, or something. And so in their unbelief, they're goading Jesus to be more impressive. And this, this is the first sign of a desert life. A desert life demands Jesus be more impressive. Like, come on, Jesus, up your game, right? And before you think, well, I would never do that, I think actually there's probably two ways in which we can, we can do this. First, we can, we can say to Jesus, like, I'll believe in you if you prove it, right? If you, if you do something spectacular, spectacular for me, I'll follow you. And maybe, maybe it's a real need, a deep, like, heartache, a request that you, that you feel. But behind, behind it is, is sort of this attitude of, you know, Jesus, I, I will, I'll follow you, right? I'll believe in you if you give me what I want. But that doesn't, that doesn't lead to life. The other, the other way I think we, we can sometimes do this is that when we see Jesus' popularity waning, we, we try to, like, run in and fix it somehow. Like, in, and that's, I mean, I, I think we probably all feel that to some extent, right? We, we live in a, in a culture that's becoming increasingly more and more difficult to be, to be a Christian. You know, the things that Jesus says about sexuality or money or caring for the marginalized or that he's the only way to God, all of these are, are deeply offensive. And so maybe you've seen friends or family members walking away from faith. 
Like, that's, that's really hard, right? That's deeply painful. Maybe, maybe you've been tempted to do so yourself. And in those moments, maybe you're tempted to say something like, Jesus, if you had just had a better PR manager, right? Or, or, maybe, or maybe you try to be his PR manager. We're just going to minimize the things that we don't like, like the things that hurt his popularity. It's very easy for churches to fall into this trap, pastors to fall into this. To just sort of say, we're not going to make any, we're not going to talk about anything that makes anyone feel too uncomfortable. But the reality is when we do that, we end up fashioning a Jesus who looks just like our 21st century American selves. And we lose the Jesus who actually came to turn deserts into rivers. A desert life only wants Jesus if he's a little more impressive. That's the, that's the first thing. Okay, go back, go back to the story here. Go back to the story. Verse, verse, 10, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Okay, so, so people, they're, they're looking for him. They're, they're expecting him to be there, and they're muttering about him. And many believe that Jesus, at this point, that he's a threat, right? And, and so Jesus, afraid of no one, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Okay, so they're, they're marveling about what's happening here, but they're, they're marveling, John makes it clear, they're marveling from a position of unbelief, Right? Jesus is a threat to them. Sure, sure he's a good teacher, but he's not, he's not one of them. You can, you can get that from that, that question. They ask, how, is, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? Because you've got you to think about this from, from their, their perspective. The Jewish authorities, the religious leaders, they'd spent their entire lives in school. And the best ones went to the best schools, right? And many of them came from families of influence and money. And then they look at this backwater hick from Nazareth, carpenter, son of a carpenter, never, never the same kind of formal education, influence, or money, but man, can he teach? And if he had been one of them, they might have listened, but he doesn't have the right pedigree, and so as a result, they consider him a threat. Which leads, I think, to the, to the second sign here of a, of a desert life. A desert life demands Jesus have the right pedigree. Essentially, it demands that Jesus fit our criteria of someone worth listening to. For, for example, you and I, it's easy to do. Like, I'm, sure, I'm sure I've done it before. You probably have as well. We can look at Jesus and be like, how could I possibly listen to someone who lived 2,000 years ago? Like, he never, he never took a science class. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't sit in political science theory. He didn't know any, you know, he hadn't studied psychology or, or any of that kind of thing. He couldn't possibly, we think, understand contemporary sexuality or global economics or what it's like to work at my desk or be married to that person or walk in my shoes. He's outdated. 
Maybe you even marvel at some of his teaching, but then you try to pick and choose to make him fit your pedigree. Well, this part's too outdated. This part's too progressive. This part's too conservative. This part doesn't fit my friend group. And when we do that with Jesus, according to John, if we pick and choose with Jesus, we're choosing a desert. That's the second thing. Okay, so story then, number three. One more, one more encounter, the last, and then we'll get to some good news, okay? Um, but verse, verse 25, it's another, another group there at the feast, right? He's just kind of going through this, these scenes uh, at the feast or leading up to the feast. Verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Okay, so this third group, they're not necessarily looking for Jesus to impress them. They've already, they've already been impressed, right? And they're not really worried about his pedigree. I mean, these are probably fairly ordinary people as well. But they still don't believe him. Why? Believe in him. Because he doesn't fit their expectations for what the Messiah should be. I mean, that comes out in their question. We, we know where you come from, right? You're, you're from Nazareth. How could you possibly be the Messiah? And this is, this is our last sign of, of a desert life. A desert life demands that Jesus fit my expectations. A desert life only wants a Jesus who fits my expectations. And what, what are our expectations? I think if we're honest, we kind of want a Jesus who already kind of agrees with everything that we think, right? That, 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 who, who's really just, just like us. Every opinion we have, he shares. You know, every, every habit he loves the same, right? He would vote exactly the same as you, spend this money the same way, your free time the same way. He loves all the th- same things you love and hates all the same people you hate. I mean, if we're honest, that's kind of, we don't expect him, we don't want him to challenge us or make us uncomfortable or to be anything different than a God made in our own image. I mean, that's ultimately it. That's what got us into trouble in the garden in the first place, Right? We, we wanted to be God. And if we can't be God, we at least want one who's exactly like us, right? Who shares all the same things as us. And so it's so easy to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'll, I'll believe in you as long as you look like me, sound like me, as long as you never challenge my beliefs or my behaviors, never, never do or say anything that makes you uncomfortable, and while you're at it, would you make my life a little bit easier? Then, Jesus, then I'll be in, right? Do we have a deal? No. According to John, when in our unbelief we demand a Jesus who fits our expectations, we choose a desert life. And while all of us, I think, fall into some of these categories, I, I'm certainly, I, I know I've done some of these things, probably all three of them to some extent, right? Fall into these, these traps, demanding Jesus to be more impressive, more up-to-date with my pedigree, more in line with my expectations. We all, we all do it, I think, and yet none of us want 
the desert life they lead to, right? None of us want that. Because for John, these are all examples of unbelief. This is what he's doing in this, this chapter. Over and over, he's showing, this is what it looks like to not believe in Jesus. For each of these groups, though, they seem so close, right? I mean, there are clearly things that they admire about Jesus. But they don't believe. And so there, there they are. They're all at this feast, right? And I imagine them now, it's, it's on the last day. I imagine Jesus, like, looking out and seeing these individual groups. And it's almost, almost like he can't take it anymore, right? So he stands up. I imagine him looking at each of these individuals with compassion in his eyes and crying out, would you just believe in me already? That, that's really what he builds to, right? In verse, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Do you want to be a desert or a river? Believe. Do you you want living water? Believe. A life flowing with living water believes. Now, the problem for us, I think, when we, when we say that word belief, that, you know, with our sort of English translation and sort of our cultural understanding, for us, like, belief is like mere mental assent. Like, it's just sort of a head nod that you agree with it. But it doesn't have to actually impact your life. And so some of you might hear that and say, well, of course I believe in Jesus, but he's not going to make any, any real difference in the way I live, right? That's, that, is not, that is not belief in the scriptures. That's not what it is. That's, like, John would say you're still in a desert if that's your attitude toward Jesus. Belief in the Bible is always active. Something you build your life on. It's, it's a place where you place your, your trust, your hope, your joy, all of it. And you, you can see this really in what Jesus says, because his invitation is, come to me. It's active. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. Like, bring your thirst to me. Come, come like, with your need, your lack, your inadequacy, all of your fears, your desperation, your sin. Don't come to me as if you've got it all figured out. Come to me with your, with your need, open-handed, open-minded, asking for help. Come to me and drink. I, I think of it a little bit like if you, were, if you were lost in the desert, dying of thirst, right? And some person shows up to you with a glass of water. Like in that moment, you would not be concerned about this person's pedigree. Like whether they fit your expectations, you wouldn't ask them to prove it. Like you would just drink, right? Because you would know your need. You would know your desperation. The thirst would overtake you and you would drink anything they handed you. And Jesus himself invites us with all of our heartache and pain to drink of him. And when we do, when we come to Jesus desperate, and thirsty, drinking deeply of his beauty and love, we become a river of water. And I, love, I love the metaphor, right? That's, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Rivers flow, don't they? They bring life. I, just, I love the imagery of this because it's not a reservoir that we become. It's not a, a scum-filled pond, right, teeming with bacteria, right? It, it's a river flowing to us and then out through us to everyone around us, bringing life and love to our world. And one of the greatest indicators of whether or not you've drunk deeply of Jesus, of whether or not you truly believe in him, is is right here. Like, would the people around you 
look at you. Your attitudes, your words, your actions, the way you spend your time or money, the things that you do when when no one else is looking, the people closest to you and the people who disagree with you. Would, Would they look at you and say, there is a river of life. I hope I get splashed. One of my favorite desert hikes, uh, we, were, we were in Moab, Utah. Um, it was over Thanksgiving a few years ago, so it was like cooler weather, uh, but it's, it's dry, right? There's no water anywhere. The desert checks out, people. It's a dry, it's a dry, dry place. Uh, and we were on this beautiful hike when all of a sudden a storm rolled in, which is pretty unusual, obviously, in the desert, and it started hailing on us, like crazy, crazy amounts of hail. Uh, you can see the picture. You can tell the kids aren't too sure, but I'm having the time of my life. I don't know. You've probably never, ever seen. I didn't even know I could ever look that happy, uh, honestly. Actually, what Kelly said is I look like the happiest homeless person she's ever seen. Um, you, you, get, you get the idea. But then, so it started hailing, and then it started just pouring on us. And the trail that we were hiking on literally turned into a river before our eyes. I mean, it was unbelievable. Like, all of a sudden, like, no water, and then just water gushing, like the the desert became a river, and where it was once dry, I mean, there were waterfalls, like there was not a waterfall there before, but all of a sudden there was a waterfall, right, and and we looked all around, and there was just just waterfalls everywhere around us, and I love this image, because this is what Jesus wants to do for you and me, I feel like a desert sometimes, I'm guessing you do too, whether, it, whether it's deep within in those places you don't want to look for yourself, right? Or, or the relationships that you have, the, 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 the feeling of being overwhelmed by the chaos around us. So often we feel depleted, dry, lifeless, as if hope is waning. But Jesus has offered us life. That through his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, through his Holy Spirit poured out on us. That's where John goes, right? He says that this river is actually God's spirit. It's God's spirit himself that he will pour out on us. Not not like a, a drop of it, right? Not just a little teaspoon. Like a river of God in us for those who believe. Empowering us. Giving us joy to be able to flow into others' lives. That he, that's what he wants to do. He wants to make you into a river of life. So come to him. Let go of your demands, your expectations, the things that you want to place upon him. He's not interested in that. Not if he's the God of the universe. He's not interested in that. Instead, bring him your need. That's what he wants. Bring him your thirst, your desperation. Bring him your sins, your fears, your inadequacies, all of it. Bring them to him. And drink. Let's pray. Father, may we be a people who do that. Who come to you time and time again in the places of our need and longing and desperation, oftentimes, and fear. May we come to you, believing you, drinking deeply of you, and would you fill us again and again and again with rivers of life the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would then flow out into every place that we go. God, whether it's our, our, our classmates, our, our co-workers, God, our neighbors, God, I pray that people would see life within us. Not because we've got it figured out, but because you are our God and our Savior, and we trust in you. 
Do that work in us, we pray. And now, Lord Jesus, as we come to your table, may we taste again this river of life that would flow within us as we celebrate your death and resurrection on our behalf. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.